This is not the media. This is hell. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell today on This is Hell. Black people are disproportionately affected and infected by the coronavirus, with a far too high percentage of those who have died in the U.S. from COVID-19 being black. Whether it's pre-existing conditions that put black people at risk, such as chronic diseases including hypertension, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, lung disease, obesity, or asthma, or it's poverty or any combination thereof. African Americans are dying at much higher rates than white people, and that's about where the conversation stops when it comes to racial disparities under the virus, or at any time in the U.S. for that matter. There is no asking what are the root causes of all these pre-existing health conditions, including poverty, among black people. Yes, there are racial disparities with the virus, as there always are with everything in the United States, but America never likes to ask the incredibly obvious question, which was, is, and will always be, apparently, why do racial disparities exist in the U.S.? And as long as the United States has existed, we have been in denial that those disparities exist because the institution of racism is part of the foundation of America from the very beginning. No, it's not poverty and poverty alone that causes more black people to die from coronavirus than whites. And white poverty is nothing like black poverty. They're two very different things. We'll talk race and the coronavirus in a few when we speak with award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about his Atlantic article, his article in The Atlantic, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. New data from 29 states confirm the extent of racial disparities. Ibram is director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. He's the National Book Award-winning author of Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in the United States, and How to Be an Anti-Racist. Both those books were featured in interviews here on This Is Hell that we did with Ibram. You can find those interviews right now at our website, thisishell.com. You can follow Ibram on Twitter at Dr. Ibram, and you can find out more about him at IbramXKendi.com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. This week's question from L is, what household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight the coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers, so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, this is hell, as we're all living in hell right now. What better time to remind others that, yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner immediately following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Alex, how are our listeners answering the question from hell so far? What are you putting in your body to fight that? What household item are you putting in your body to fight COVID-19? I had to change it a little bit. Uh, What household item are you putting in your body to fight COVID-19? Ronaldo M. said, pasta fajoul. (laughs) Harold J. says, I do like pasta fajoul. Harold J. says, I've been freebasing mothballs. (laughs) Joanne C. says, toilet plunger. I'll just suck the virus out. (laughs) Zach N. says, whatever gets me feeling fresh like dryer sheets. (laughs) Dick H says, I've been applying coconut oil to my nether regions. It doesn't seem to be working, but it sure is fun putting on. Do you hate dryer sheets as much as I do? Uh, the things that you use to make it not smell like weed? Yeah. Oh, do you do you something else with those things? No, I just wash my clothes. Dryer sheets, whenever anybody in my neighborhood, either building on either side of me, was running their dryer with dryer sheets, my whole build, my whole house just fills up with that stench. I just can't stand artificial smells. Ugh. Nikki says, a mixture of ammonia and bleach with a bar of Fells naphtha soap dropped in for good measure. Vaporously good fun, but for some reason I always have to be rushed to the ER after I use it. <laughs> Mike A says, three-in-one household oil. <laughs> now that makes sense. Jeffy D says, mustard as deodorant, releases mustard gas, <laughs> fighting the war on the virus with WMD. Goes great with the hot dog smell from my pits, too. Oh, God. Braden S says, weed. 
What are you? What household item are you using to fight the COVID virus? Marty F says, I slathered my body in country crock butter so coronavirus doesn't have a surface to latch onto. It also makes my skin feel buttery smooth. Tobias M says, nicotine, apparently. And Benjamin C says, flogiston. Did you see that Chris Cuomo's wife apparently took a bath in bleach when she had coronavirus? That kind of rules, actually. It's so stupid. I just love how how dumb everyone is. That that was an argument, though, that some people on the right were using to say, well, see, Trump wasn't so stupid about saying injecting, you know, disinfectant into your body. Chris Cuomo's wife was taking a bath in bleach. Yeah, there's some moral equivalency for you there. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And right at the beginning of the week, after we gave you this week's Hangover Cure, We started by pointing out that no matter how hard the media tries to make us believe that under the virus we are all in this together, it's simply just, it's not true. If we were all in this together, we would have universal health care and everybody would be getting tests. Not only the wealthiest and the most famous and the wealthy and famous wouldn't be living in gated communities if we were all in this together. If we were all in this together, like the news wants us to think we are, then the President of the United States wouldn't be dismissing the media as fake news. How are we all in this together from the media's point of view when they are berated daily by the leader of government as being complete frauds that do nothing all day but think of ways to lie about President Trump? How are we all in this together if the president is cheering on armed mobs who are protesting what are often the very protocols that the president has put into place himself? And by the way, I've been an anti-war at anti-war protests in the past. Before I ever did the radio show, I stopped going to uh, war protests after we started the show because I thought it might have some sort of conflict of uh, interest. But I've been to plenty of anti-war protests in the past that have attracted 10 times the number of marchers they have that have appeared at state capitals. And those protests never got any press coverage at all. Not locally, not nationally, nothing. And if we did, the numbers protesting were always underestimated, and those reports were few and far between. So what gives establishment media? Why are you more than willing to cover anti-government protests when they have to do with the economy, but have no interest in anti-government protests when they have to do with going to a pointless war? In fact, every year there are dozens of protests in Chicago, bigger than those happening now at state capitals. And very few even make the local news. So, no, we're not all in this together. And as we'll learn when we talk to Ibram X. Kendi in a few, the other media platitude of the virus treating us all equally is equally not true. Then, yesterday, we started the show by telling you how the media had gone from being all in this together to telling us now that we all had quarantine fatigue. Yep, one month of trying to protect ourselves, our family our communities, from the spread of a plague, we'd grown weary, bored with our stupid families, so bored, in fact, that we were willing to risk our lives just to get out of the house and away from that brooding brood. As I mentioned yesterday, the coronavirus appears to have encountered the seven stages of grief. It started with disbelief. Sure, it can happen in China, but that's far away, in a place where they always get epidemics. To denial, yeah, China, but that can't happen here in the good old exceptional U.S. of A. That's when the grieving person starts to bargain, and the deal we made was one month in quarantine and no more, apparently, thinking that would pass as some sort of sacrifice to a god of virus who will then give us some kind of plentiful harvest this summer. I don't know. Next, it was guilt, kinda, in that we did not feel guilty ourselves for whatever role the market or globalization or capitalism played in creating the plague, but guilt as in trying to find others who are guilty so we can blame anyone or anything but our own actions, can avoid considering our complicity in the spread of this virus. Then came the next stage of grief, anger, which we saw embodied in the protest at state capitals. Quarantine fatigue is a reflection of that anger. So all we have left is depression, which is 
followed by some kind of combination of acceptance and hope. As I pointed out on yesterday's show, that it appeared depression would be our next stage that we would enter. And sure enough, that's where we found CBS Evening News last night. Moving on to the issue of depression under the virus within the individual story of a Manhattan emergency room doctor by the name of Lorna Breen, who committed suicide due to depression brought on by seeing so many people suffer and die from COVID-19. Which means all we have left is acceptance and hope, and these seven stages are happening fast and furious, so maybe we'll be accepting tonight and filled with hope tomorrow. CBS Evening News is already trying to sow that hope, but they are definitely not doing that by all being in this together. Instead, the only real cure for the virus is a vaccine, and it's not being pursued in a cooperative way, but within CBS's framing, it should be pursued through competition. You know, like the fantastic market competition we have here in the U.S. healthcare system that leads to medical bankruptcies and people choosing between their bottom line and their life. CBS's segment, segment on vaccine news is called The Race for the Cure. Problem is, races have a starting line, and we're still not entirely certain where the virus originated. Races also have a set length, a distance, and the contestant with the best time wins, but the virus doesn't pay attention to our clocks and calendars. It is not aware of any federal or state-mandated dates for reopening the economy. In races, there is a determined and definite finish line, and there is nothing like that in a race. Had CBS Evening News simply called this In Search of a Cure, then we would know the mysterious potential for chasing down this cure. The media wants us to believe we have some sort of control of the virus and that the virus does not have control of us. But it does. The virus controls us. The government wants us to believe... They've got a handle on this, coming up with dates that always change, giving out heaping doses of false hope that will hopefully keep all those people who are in constant fear, fear of immigrants, fear of those people are coming to take all our stuff of the big bad government until the authoritarian they want is in power, then suddenly they can't get enough of the federal government to keep all those people who are so afraid they armed themselves to the teeth to keep them from looting. Now the government is sending out military jets to perform aerial tricks above major cities and attempt to distract those who may be thinking, yeah, I could definitely get into looting, into staring at those skies for a few minutes and being reminded the government still is in power and still is in control. See, we can get multi-million dollar jets to do tricks for you. We are totally in control. If the next stage really is acceptance in some form of hope, and the news, news guides us in that direction as they have seemingly been giving us a tour of all the previous stages of grief. What will that mean? Accepting that we must all do what is needed together to work cooperatively and cure what ails us? Accepting that we must get the economy going so everybody's getting hazmat suits, which we all must wear outside at all times from now on? Acceptance that now life is like this permanently and there's nothing that can be done about it? Acceptance that the outbreak of this pathogen had nothing to do with any action we took at all. It's just the way nature is, so let's adapt and move on. Because if that acceptance is the next stage of grief that we are entering, then you can forget about any hope awaiting us in grief's final stage. And all that will be waiting for us is a big sign that says, This is hell coming up on This is Hell. Please stop blaming black people for disproportionately being affected by COVID-19. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live stream host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. This is not contrarian radio. This is hell. Black people are being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus because of poverty. Black people are dying from COVID-19 at higher rates from, than anyone else because of pre-existing medical conditions. Black people are suffering far more than anyone else because of a lack of taking this plague seriously. Here to explain why, sure, those things can and could cause a poor response to the virus. None of that is why black people are suffering more 
in the global pandemic. Here to help us understand why African Americans are so adversely affected, returning to This Is Hell award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi wrote the Atlantic magazine article, Stop Blaming Black People of Dying of the Coronavirus. New data from 29 states confirm the extent of the racial disparities. Ibram is director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Ibram and find out more about Ibram at IbramXKendi.com. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Ibram. Oh, of course. Thank you for having me back. Ibram is the National Book Award-winning author of Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, and How to Be an Anti-Racist, which have both been featured here on This Is Hell. You can hear those interviews at our site, thisishell.com. You write how in early April, your dad, who often makes biblical references, likened you to John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness for racial data on the pandemic. You explain how you had to remind him that, unlike the Baptist, you were not crying out alone, as you point out. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Representative Ayanna Presley, and a quintet of black doctors at the University of Virginia had also raised the alarm. But we were indeed in the wilderness. On April 1st, hardly any states, counties, hospitals, or private labs had released the racial demographics of the people who had been tested for, infected with, hospitalized with, or killed by COVID-19. Five days later, citing racial disparities in infection or death rates from five states or counties and the racial demographics of the worst coronavirus hotspots, you speculated that America was facing a racial pandemic within the viral pandemic. And I want to talk about that in a little bit, and I want to get to this data. But why do you think the data was slow to being released? Was it merely everybody's busy fighting COVID-19 and nobody has time to do a study, or was it something else? Obviously, I, you know, no one knows for sure right now, um, because obviously there are different sort of states and and almost none of the states were, were releasing this data. But what we do know is that early in this pandemic, you had many Americans saying things like, this is the great equalizer. And, and what that means is that we don't necessarily have to look at this pandemic through a racial lens or a class lens um, or, or other lens. And, and, and then you also, we also know that, that Americans typically it almost has to be proven without a shadow of a doubt that there's disparities, that there's racism in order for Americans to take it seriously. And, and so, it, it, you know, we don't know for sure, but it certainly was a huge problem that we have so many health disparities, racial health disparities in this country, and we weren't collecting racial data from the beginning to see if there were disparities in infection, hospitalization and death rates from COVID-19. So is that very common when it comes to uh, racial disparities, especially with medical issues, that that's just something that there's very rarely studies being done and not enough information on the topic? So I think we could always certainly have more information, but for the most part, it is we do have quite a bit of data on the fact that black people are more likely to to have cancer, to die of cancer. Black people are more likely to have heart disease, to have asthma. So we, we have sort of currently, we have racial data um, on many of these pre-existing conditions that then, of course, people are talking about is has, has led to disproportionate black deaths. And, and, and so I think what I'm saying is because we knew that there was disparities in disease and dying rates to begin with for other sort of diseases. Why wasn't, why didn't state health departments assume that there could be disparities? And the only way we would know if there's disparities within this pandemic is by collecting and releasing racial data. And you were pushing for the release of this racial data back on April 1st in your first article at The Atlantic that was demanding to know who the victims of coronavirus really were. And by April 14th, you're writing in Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of Coronavirus that at least 29 states have released the racial demographics of confirmed coronavirus uh, cases, death rates, or both according to the COVID Racial Data Tracker. The tracker, a collaboration between the Atlantic's COVID Tracking Project and my colleagues at the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center is being developed to track, analyze, and regularly update racial data on the pandemic within the United States. And people can find your COVID tracker at covidtracking.com. 
Do you think that not releasing this racial data in any way, do you have any indication or looking back at the history of the way that racial disparities are revealed by governments, do you think that any of this lack of release of data was intentional, was a choice that was being made? So what we do know is that the the Trump administration has has frowned upon the recognition um, of race as a critical sort of variable. Uh, what we do know is that uh, health agencies like the CDC have been ordered to uh, not necessarily talk about and use words like diversity um, or, or recognize on some levels variables like race. And, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me, especially coming from the federal government, this federal government, if 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 people were advised to not uh, collect racial data. But what we also know is that even collecting data on of any kind, I mean, Americans, America, this this country, many of the states were simply not prepared. <laughs> and, and we were not prepared to do much of anything uh, correctly early in this pandemic. And, and I think that, that, that that's a sign of a larger, more essential and fundamental problem that presumably has led to more Americans uh, being infected and, and, and becoming extremely ill and even dying as a result. A question I've been asking a lot of guests, Ibram, is what do we miss in understanding the poor response by the United States to the coronavirus when we only blame President Trump, and even to a greater extent, the Trump administration. What do we miss in understanding that poor response when we only lay all of the responsibility at the feet of an individual or one administration within the history of presidential administrations in the United States? Well, I think you you have the federal um, sort of government, um, the Trump administration. You also have Congress. And, and, and so when we talk about why was Congress slow to act, of course, that, that falls on the feet of the Senate, the Senate GOP majority, um, and that then falls on the feet of, of Mitch McConnell. There's no way anyone, any historian is going to be able to write the history of the Trump administration, the history of all the things, all of the ways in which Trump was able to either harm Americans or get away with harming Americans without talking about the Mitch McConnell, without talking about um, the uh, leaders in the House. Uh, and, and so that's, of course, at the national level. But then at the state level, you know, hopefully we will talk about the way in which the governor of Georgia is, is opening uh, that state back up, even though Southwest Georgia has and and specifically this group of five majority these five counties in which the largest uh, racial group in these counties are black and they all surround Albany, Georgia. Um, that that is one of the largest hotspots in the country. Indeed, I, I think a few days ago I, I looked at what are the top ten counties in the country with the highest death rates per 100,000. Five of those counties were in Georgia, and all five of those counties were in southwest Georgia, and all five of those counties, the largest racial group, were Black people. And then, at that same time, Georgia and the governor were opening back up. So essentially, one of the sites, one of the major outbreak zones in the country is in Georgia, and it's being opened back up. And so the deaths that may come from that are not at the foot of Trump. They're at the foot of this 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 Georgia governor, and then other you know Alabama right now. It's twenty six percent of the population. Um, you know Alabama has South Carolina. Other states have 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 disproportionate numbers of black people who are dying. You can't necessarily blame that on the government. The same thing in Illinois. The same thing in New York. You, uh, again, people can find your tracking site at covidtracking.com. You were just saying that you had to look it up. You had to look up that news. 
That was not part of the news story when I watched on CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox. That's not part of the news story. You had to go look that up, Ibram. Last Saturday, as The Guardian reported, for the first weeks of the pandemic in St. Louis, Missouri, the only ones to die from the virus were black. By April 8th, the coronavirus had killed 12 people. Each and every one was African-American. Since yeah. the virus started, I've been watching, like I was saying, a lot more of the really bad TV news shows on cable and on the traditional networks. And I realize this is anecdotal, but I never saw any mention of this story on any network news show. Yet every day I'm being told, we're all in this together, Ibram. Are we all in this together? No, and I think I think one of the one of the most difficult stories of this pandemic, this viral pandemic is indeed what I'm calling this racial pandemic. And and most in particular, it's black people dying at, 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 at rates that are not reflecting their population. So I mentioned Alabama, Alabama, black people are about 27% of the state's population, but 45% of the people who died from COVID. In Arkansas, black people are about 16% of the population, but 35% of the people who died. In California, 6.5% of, of the population, but 11% of the people who died. In District of Columbia, 46% of the population, but 80% of, of the people who died. In Georgia, 32% of the population, but 54% of the people who died. And, and state after state, black people are double. They're dying at double their, their state population. And then the question becomes why? And then you have some Americans saying that black people are to blame for their own deaths. You are calling this the racial pandemic within the coronavirus pandemic. There is the old saying that when white America faces an economic recession, black America gets an economic depression. Whatever problem or crisis arises, do people of color suffer more than white Americans? And do you think that is lost on the media? What happens when the media, when people just don't understand that whatever the crisis is, black Americans are going to suffer from it more than white Americans? I, I think in order for people to understand that, they have to recognize the existence of racism even before the pandemic. And they have to recognize the existence of racial disparities even before the pandemic. And they have to recognize that those disparities are, are, bec are because of racist policies, past and present. And, and so then when you have a, a pandemic and, and we begin to see, first, you're gonna know to look for, okay, there could be disparities. And then you're not going to then blame black people. You're gonna try to figure out, okay, why is it that black people are more likely to be infected. Oh, it's it's because they're they're less likely to be able to work in jobs that they can work from home, or they're more likely to live in densely populated neighborhoods where no matter your race, you're more likely to, to be infected. They're, they're more likely then to leave their homes in these densely populated neighborhoods and thereby get infected and then return to their homes and infect their families. And indeed, a lot of the transmission is happening within the home in which somebody goes outside the home and comes back and infects someone. And then the question is, why are they more likely to have heart disease and, and, and cancer and asthma? And it's easy to say it's, oh, because they're not eating right. But we have data and we have studies that show that, that black neighborhoods are more likely to be near sort of toxic wake dumps, that, that black people are more likely to live in food deserts. They're more likely to live in trauma deserts. They're less likely to receive the same care as white people from the same hospitals and same doctors. They're less likely to be insured, which then makes them less likely to get preventative care. And on and on and on. Here in Chicago on April 11th at 8 a.m. in the Little Village neighborhood on Chicago's south side, a predominantly Latinx neighborhood, they blew up, they demolished the old Crawford plant, which is a coal plant. They blew up the smokestack and it covered the entire area in dust. Apparently, again, this is at 8 a.m. on April 11th in the midst of the pandemic, and apparently Mayor Lightfoot did not know that this was going to be happening at that time. This is a perfect example of the kind of environmental racism that people exist within, people of color exist within, every day of their lives. 
how much are we in denial about environmental racism, which leads to us being in denial about all the other ways in which black Americans can suffer far more from the coronavirus than white Americans do. I, I think that, that, that there are many levels of denial and, and potentially environmental racism is, is probably at the top of the list. If, if somebody was to ask me a single, like if I had to give the primary reason why black people are more likely to have these serious diseases that then make them more likely to die of COVID-19, I would say environmental racism. I mean, and, and we know we, there's so much evidence that, that shows and that black people, no matter the class of the neighborhood, are more likely to, to, to be positioned by uh, near, you know, toxic dumps, or um, they're more likely to have to live in, in homes where there's lead, or they're, they're more likely to have their water poisoned, you know, as happened in, in Flint, Michigan. And, 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 and that's not to say that there aren't white communities that are also obviously being sort of poisoned, usually by, by, by corporate sort of interests, but, but that is to say that black people are just more likely, their communities are more likely in all of those situations in which any American is, is, is being sort of poisoned by their environment and thereby developing illnesses as a result, you know, obviously is bad. So what would you say to someone? You were mentioning population density in urban areas where people of color live. What would you say to someone who argues this is not a matter of race, the fact that there's a disproportionate amount of black Americans who are suffering and dying from COVID-19, but geography. People of color live in cities. Cities have higher population densities, so they have uh, more cases, more chances of getting the virus and a greater likelihood of death. Keeping in mind geography is obviously racialized as everything is in the US. US. Is this about race or is this about place? Well, I would ask, my response to that is, why is it that, that black people um, had historically been concentrated in these urban neighborhoods. Now, I'd say more and more black people are, are, are moving into suburban areas, but, but there was a time in the 1940s and especially 1950s and 1960s when many of these suburban communities were being built and opened up and, and black people desired to move out there for some of the same reasons white people did, but they were disallowed from doing so. Their, their communities were redlined and, and so, effectively by the government and even private interests, they were barred from moving into different communities. Um, what we should also sort of understand is people also make the case, it's, it's not just about geography, it's also just a poverty issue. It's a class issue, not a race issue. As if you can talk about race without talking about class or about class without talking about race. And in, for instance, in Chicago, you know, Chicago is pretty emblematic of the relationship between white poverty and black poverty, in which black poverty is is typically black poor people, I should say, are far and away more likely to live in high poverty neighborhoods than white poor people. Indeed, in Chicago, a black poor person is about 10 times more likely to live in a high poverty neighborhood than a white poor person. And, and so then the question becomes, why? Why do we have these sizable communities of poor black people? And, and we don't necessarily have as many sizable communities of, of white poor people. And, and the answer to that, again, is racism. A listener sent us a link to an article at leftvoice.org by Sao Paulo political scientist Andre Acier with the headline Pandemic and Class Relations. In it, Acier writes, the most misleading cliche about the coronavirus is that the virus treats us all the same. Does the virus treat us all equally? And to you, why, more importantly, this is what's more important to me, Ibram, why does that myth exist? Why does that, the media perpetuate that myth? What does that myth try to perpetuate or what does it try to obscure? So I think it's critical for us to, to recognize that at a biological level that we're pretty much all the same. 
And, and so there are those who believe that Latinx people or native people are literally a different, have a different biological makeup than let's say white people and black people, which, and then they believe that then that biological makeup makes them either predisposed or immune to coronavirus or another sort of virus or disease. That is a fiction of the racist imagination. And so we're all pretty much the same. So it is the case that no matter your racial identity, you can get infected and killed by COVID-19. But then the next question is, but your racial identity has bearing on whether you're going to be infected or killed, whether you're more likely to live in a, in a community where there's higher infection rates, whether you're more likely to work in a job that allows you to, to work from home, whether you, when you actually get critically ill with COVID-19, whether you're going to receive life-saving care, whether you live in an area in which you have COVID-19 and, and your, your doctor, because of the number of people in those hospitals told you to, to, to basically wait it out at home, even though some of your symptoms are pretty serious. It, it, a lot of this is determinate upon your racial identity in the, in the communities that, that we're living in and to deny that is to deny reality. It is very much in denial of reality, and we're going to be talking about that denialism in a few minutes. You write, Americans are blaming black people to explain the disparities and the mortality rate. Too many politicians and commentators are noting that black people have more underlying medical conditions, but crucially, they're not explaining why, or they blame the choices made by black people or, or poverty or obesity, but not racism. To you, what explains that disconnect between the causes of the ailments people of color suffer at disproportionate rates and those rates? Why does the conversation seemingly stop at, yes, black people get sick and not continue to so why do black people get sick? Why does it always stop at, we are going to report in the media, these statistics, these racial disparities, and then it doesn't take the next step of the conversation about why those racial disparities exist? I think, I think first and foremost, you, we Americans have long been trained to look at a single black person who is not social distancing, um, who is not taking care of their health, and not see a single person who is not social distancing, who's not taking the virus seriously, who is not necessarily taking care of their health. You know what they see? They see black people. <laughs> they see millions of black people. That person becomes representative of black people. And so what's happening is in the media, you have people going into the media using individual anecdotes and then saying, you know what, because of, and then after talking about that person or those five people or 30 people who are not taking the virus seriously, who are social distancing or not social distancing, who are gathering, and then saying, you know what, black people need to take this virus seriously. Black people are not social distancing. They, they, and, and I think that that is extremely problematic because that is not evidence of what black people are doing. And it's even, we know that not only is it, is it a racist idea to make a single black person representative of an entire race, not only is it a racist idea to say that black people are irresponsibly not taking this COVID-19 pandemic seriously, they're not being responsible like white people, and that is why they're dying at, and being infected at higher rates. We also know it's not true. And so survey data, even before we knew about these racial disparities, were proving that black people were actually far and away more likely than white people to be taking this virus seriously at the same time they were more likely to be dying. I also think it's an easier, it's an easier sort of news peg. It's an easier conversation for, for us to have in our sort of quick hit media just to say, oh, the reason why is black people aren't taking it seriously. It's much harder to explain all of the different factors that are leading to these racial disparities, the policy factors, the historical factors. It's, it's much harder to explain that. 
Um, and then you have so many people who just can't imagine that there's nothing wrong with black people. They've been taught their whole lives there's something wrong with black people. And so anytime there's a racial conversation, that's their go-to. There's something wrong with black people and they must be killing themselves. Under neoliberalism, everything is very individualized. So it kind of makes sense that you would blame an individual for doing individual actions. But under neoliberalism, those individual actions aren't then universalized when it's a white person who takes that action. To what extent are black people blamed for their plight, possibly more so today, under neoliberalism and its focus on the individual and individual choices and actions? Does neoliberalism further institutionalize racism? Is neoliberalism just another racist institution? Well, yeah, I mean, and I think one of the one of the terms that really emerged under neoliberalism in, in the 1990s that has resurfaced during this pandemic is the term personal responsibility. And so it was imagined in the, in the 90s that, yes, racism, ex- ex- and what, what many Democrats would say is, yes, racism exists, but black people also need to take personal responsibility. And so the reason why you have these massive economic and and other disparities in society is is not just because of racism, it's also because of black people not taking personal responsibility. And so too, do you now have people making the same case that, that yes, racism is existing and persisting and leading to these disparities, but it's undeniable, they say, that, that, that black people are not taking personal responsibility to ensure that they are, being, that they are healthy. It's undeniable that, that, that black people are, 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 should be taking better care of themselves, should be eating better. And, and so what I say in response to that is, and it's undeniable that there are white people who should be eating better, who could be taking better care of themselves. No one has ever proven that there are more black people who make are making poor health choices um, than white people in similar circumstances, but we're still more likely to be diseased and dying. And so why, how do you explain that? And, and so I think one of the things we've been trained to do under neoliberalism is to individualize the group, which makes no sense. You have an individual and you have a group. And we have to understand them in a distinct fashion. You quote Barack Obama writing in Dreams from My Father, only white culture has individuals. How does black Americans representing their race more than white Americans, how does that affect the daily lives of black people? Well, I think, for instance, right now, I think uh, about two weeks ago, the CDC and others started urging Americans if they're going to go outside to wear masks. And for many black people and many brown people, that was a very difficult, that it, it's led to some internal struggles because they know that white Americans in particular, when they see a black person who's wearing a mask, they may not see a person who is following CDC guidelines. They may see another crook or robber and and thereby react accordingly. And even more in a fearful fashion, when they pass by a police officer, they and they're in the store wearing their mask, as two young brothers were in, in, in a Walmart recently, they're, they're not going to be perceived as another two people who are buying uh, food, they're they're going to be perceived as two people who are trying to rob the place, and then they're going to be escorted out um, of the Walmart, passing by all these white people who are wearing masks just like they are, who are thereby not seen as as representatives of this dangerous race. And indeed, even when white men grab their assault rifles and go and kill dozens of people. Americans do not view that white male as representative of all white men or of all white people as they should not. And, 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 and so, but of course, whenever a black person does something negatively, we are viewed as they are representing this negative inferior race. And it prevents 
people from seeing black people as individuals, as seeing black people as complex people, as imperfect people, um, just as white and other racial groups are, are complex and imperfect. You quote Senator Bill Cassidy saying, if you have diabetes, obesity, hypertension, then African-Americans are going to have more of those receptors the coronavirus likes to hit. The senior senator from Louisiana, Republican, continued, now as a physician, who knew, I would say we need to address the obesity epidemic, which disproportionately affects African-Americans that would lower the prevalence of diabetes of hypertension. Ibram Please explain to Dr. Cassidy, how does racism cause obesity among black Americans? Man, I mean, where do we even sort of begin? And and this senator, what, what's striking about him is not only is he a physician, not only is he the senior senator from Louisiana, which up until recently had one of the worst outbreaks in the country. So it was really Louisiana, Southwest Georgia, and New York City as, as the prime hotspots until recently. He, he also then has, he could have taken a leadership role um, based on his medical training, based on his uh, position as the senior senator from Louisiana, but of course, instead of taking a leadership role to really figure out, okay, what's happening in Louisiana that's that's leading to, to black people making up about 32% of the population, but 60% of the people who are dying, what policies are, are leading to obesity rates being higher among black people? Instead, he just says black people are obese. That's the problem. And then that feeds this sort of larger sort of fat phobic narrative that then blames, that says that if people are obese, they are obese because they are undisciplined, because they eat too much, because there's something wrong with them, as opposed to recognizing obesity as a disease, um, or us recognizing that the people we view as obese don't aren't necessarily obese or do not necessarily have a disease, or indeed are more healthy than the people um, who are slimmer than them. And, and so I think there are a number of policies that are leading to, and we spoke about some of them earlier, the, the, the way in which, um, you know, I don't think people understand how critical food deserts are to not only obesity levels, but even people's overall health. If, if you are lower income and you live in an area where it's hard to find relatively affordable non-processed, high-quality food, then it's going to force you to purchase low-quality, highly processed foods, which then are going to affect your health. And and, and so I, I don't think we recognize that relationship. And we, we can then also sort of talk about if you are being forced because of your income to work multiple jobs, or to work one job in which you're working 60, 70 hours outside of your home, you may not have the time <laughs> to literally spend to cook, or you may not have the time to spend to exercise. And then we blame those people for not exercising and cooking, as opposed to trying to figure out, okay, how can we free up more time? How can we give them a living wage? Anyway, don't get me started on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want to do. I want to get you started. You write, others have embraced a different theory of black culpability. You then cite the New York Times reporting an information vacuum in some black communities allowed false rumors to fester that black people were immune to the disease. You also have CNN's Van Jones declaring influential figures in black communities need to unite and overcorrect for the misinformation running rampant about African Americans being immune to COVID-19. And the Los Angeles activist Naji Ali telling the Los Angeles Times, that myth spread like wildfire on social media, but there was never a concentrated effort from leaders to dispel that myth. But you explain what actually spread like wildfire was another myth, that the fable of black immunity affected black behavior. Where's the evidence that this was widely believed by black people? Where's the evidence that it caused black people to not take the virus as seriously as others did? Anecdotes offer evidence of individual behavior, not group behavior. And you even point to statistics that show that black Americans were buying disinfectant, were buying toilet paper, were buying all of the preparatory things that you needed to fight the virus at twice the rate 
of white Americans. Are Van Jones and Najee Ali, are they exacerbating racism by putting these points of view forward? And how should they have been framing the issue instead of the way that they did? So whenever anyone says that part of the problem, part of the cause of racial disparities are what's wrong with black people. In this case, it was imagined that black people were saying that black people were immune. And so as a result, black people did not take the virus seriously. And so as a result, black people are partially or totally to blame for being infected and dying at at greater rates. Typically, when people make a case about black behavior or about what black people are thinking, they typically do not present any evidence. (laughs) So there's no evidence that black people believed at greater rates than other races that they were immune to the disease. There's no evidence that that belief then led to black people not taking the virus as seriously. So to me, was it a problem that you had people on social media saying that 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 black people were immune, of course. But the problem was those individuals who were saying that. Like they certainly are the problem because they were spouting something that had no evidence. Personally, I believe that humans and every racial group, you you have people who are 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 going to believe and people who are not. You I, I have a I don't have this belief that black people as a group are so naive that they're just gonna believe somebody spouting on social media who's not a scientist or a doctor that black people are immune and then they're just gonna go out and act like that. I I mean, that was inconceivable to me, but there's so many people who believe somehow that black people are that that naive. So this then becomes a problem, even though they have no evidence that it actually was a problem. And so what I'm saying ultimately is they could have said those individuals who said that they were a problem. Just like the individuals who are saying that we can drink bleach and and get sort of cured, they're a problem too. There's so much misinformation that is going on that has been going on from the beginning and that was one form of misinformation. So to me, that should have been a part of a larger discussion about misinformation that is being circulated in all communities. Ibram, you write that today the racial disparities are undeniable, but Americans don't know for sure that there, race, there is racism behind those racial disparities. The racism itself remains deniable. So yet again, our voices are crying out in the wilderness for a miracle to save America from its original sin, the sin Americans can't ever seem to confess. I was trying to figure out why is it so difficult for America to admit to its past and present of institutionalized racism? Uh, Ibram, in avoiding a conversation about institutionalized racism, are we avoiding a discussion, a critique of capitalism? Do we not want to talk about race because capitalism is above criticism and the criticism of capitalism is un-American and one of the foundations of American capitalism is racism? I think for some people that certainly is the case, and especially those Americans who freely identify as as, as capitalists. Um, and what's fascinating about the discussion and really the argument around racism is typically people who are arguing about the existence of racism have different definitions of racism. And typically people who are arguing about capitalism have different definitions of capitalism. And so you, you have some people who, who do not recognize the, the historic relationship between racism and capitalism because of the way they define capitalism. And then you have others who actually recognize that relationship. And, and so one of the things that I've, I've called for, I know in my work, is with we need to have a very real and honest conversation about what capitalism is. And and what I find is those who are promoting capitalism typically promote definitions that have no basis in historical and material reality. 
So you, yeah, it, it makes sense in a textbook, but then when you begin applying that definition to actually our historical economic system, it, it you know, it I, I can't even see the way it even operates. They say things like free markets. <laughs> um, they think they think things like, oh, it's you know, it's I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And then when you actually talk about the ways in which things are actually not free or not free for certain groups. They either completely dismiss that or they say, okay, well, that's a cleavage or that's a that's that's more of the sort of a margins of a central. And and so I think we have to really have a, a very clear and, and very honest conversation about capitalism. And I know as being an historian that the origins of capitalism itself in the United States and even in the Western world cannot be separated from the origins of racism. They have long intersected, they have long reinforced each other, and they're reinforcing each other today. One last question for you, Ibram. We've been speaking with award-winning author and historian Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the Atlantic Magazine article, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. Ibram is director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University and the National Book Award-winning author of Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America and How to Be an Anti-Racist, which were both featured here on This Is Hell. You can hear our interviews with Ibram on each book at thisishell.com. You can follow Ibram Ibram on Twitter at Dr. Ibram, and you can find out more about Ibram at IbramXKendi.com. One last question for you, Ibram. And as always, it's our question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I'm just trying to learn from this question, which I'm trying to do from with all the questions. But some argue that saying the problem faced by women is misogyny, but misogyny could be a dead end politically, appearing as something that has always existed and cannot be undone, making it a political dead end. Can racism be a political dead end? And if it doesn't have to be, how can racism not be a political dead end? And just seeing it as something that, well, that is the cause of everything. It's always existed and it always will. Well, I think first and foremost, if, if we believe that that racism will always exist, then the historic beneficiaries of, of, of racism, that the current beneficiaries of racism will win. Because what has always led to the dismantling of certain racist policies and even ideas has been resistance. And what has always fed resistance was a belief that racism could be toppled. Now, I, I think what's also critical for it to not be a political dead end, for, for us to not imagine that we cannot build a massive coalition of people who are striving to be anti-racist, is for people to recognize the ways in which racism is actually harming them. We actually don't need the majority of Americans to be altruistic in order to be anti-racist. We just need to get them to think about what type of society would be in my best interest. And is that type of society better than our current type of society? And you know, we can get into that, but, but generally speaking, you, you, many people point to Trump as the problem the single distinction of the Trump voter was the Trump voters' racist ideas. And all of the things that have flowed to harm people of color and white Americans have largely flowed from that racist voter who imagined that somehow Trump was their defender and now they're being harmed right now. Ibram, it is always a pleasure to have you on our show. People can go back and hear our interviews with you at thisishell.com of both of your really, really amazing books, Stamped from the Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist. We picked both of those books as some of our favorites to be featured on the show both of those years. We always appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much. Always an honor and a pleasure, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. Always, always great to be on the show. All right. Take care. That's award-winning author Ibram X. Kendi, who wrote the Atlantic Magazine article, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. You can follow Ibram on Twitter at Dr. Ibram, and you can find out more about Ibram at IbramXKendi.com. 
Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex will have more answers to the question from Hell from you on tomorrow's show. This week's question from Hell is, what household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you using to fight the coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10. This is Hell's advertising stickers, so you too can can subvert outdoor ads with the words this is hell you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email it to us at alex at this is hell.com or chuck at this is hell.com but you have to have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show when 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 we are announcing the winner right after jeff dorchin delivers the moment of truth Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live show streaming at 10 a.m. Central Time, uh, Central Daylight Time, Chicago Time at thisishell.com. Laura Carlson's back. Really yeah. excited. This is continuing in our series of Thursday check-ins from people around the world dealing with uh, life in, during a pandemic. We're talking with Laura Carlson in Mexico City about Mexican politics and uh, U.S. Mexican politics uh, in the time of the coronavirus. And then also Jeffy will be on to talk about his to wrap up his four-part piece on uh, Schmuck der Schmoo. <laughs> it's a fictional expose of a guy whose name sounds a lot like Schmuck der Shrew. Oh, hey, sorry. Uh, I got one other thing, uh, too. I just got to plug. Our friend Perita got in touch with me yeah. uh, to plug an event, and I'm going to send it to you now, but I'll mention it now, too, also, as um, a group of Solidarity Networks are uh, hosting a big event on May Day called Close the Jails, Open the Houses, and that's going to be Friday at 3 p.m. through 6 p.m. in Tui Park. And uh, details and locations are TBA. I'll be sharing this on Facebook, but uh, they do say wear masks. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ibram X. Kendi for being today's guest. The planet's on fire with a virus. So, yes, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.